0: Lou Anders is the editor in chief of Pyre Books it's an imprint of Prometheus. Thank you for joining me, Lou. Thank you, Rick. Let's talk about uh this 5 years of of Pyre. 5 years ago you had just come from editing Live Without a Net. Take us back to who you were at that point in time. You're a guy who had, you know, some some good editing credits um uh to, and how you got this gig at, over at Prometheus.
1: Well, I had done Live Without a Net, and I believe the sequel, Future Shocks, was also out from rock. That was either out or coming out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had edited freelance a couple issues of a, apparently, as we now know, Doomed revival of Argosy Magazine.
0: Oh, wow. I and, remember uh, those. Those were beautiful, too. I've, thank no, you. I know I remember. very proud of the work that was done, <laughs> not, 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 I have some um,
1: creative differences with the with the publisher, mm-hmm. but I'm very proud of the work that was done in the magazines. I think they are beautiful. I just got asked to sign those last week at Mid-South Con. I haven't thought about them or talked about them in years, and someone brought me two to sign. And I, I, you know, It's the first time I've cracked the cover on them in, God, five years. And they really were beautiful.
0: They were beautiful books. Um, so I was doing that,
1: and a colleague, I, had, I, I began in 2000 in online publishing, in a now-defunct company called Bookface.com. Mm-hmm.
0: I remember Bookface, right, right, right. Yeah.
1: So a colleague from Bookface uh, wrote me and said that they'd seen a job opening at a company called Prometheus who wanted to create a science fiction line and were looking for someone to run it. And I, at the time, I had no interest.
2: <laughs>
1: and I had, I had printed out the email and thrown it away. And my wife um, said, you crazy, you ought to apply for that. And I said, well, I'm really not that interested, and I'm not sure I can do it. And she said, well, you know, apply anyway, at least see what people think, you know, of you. They'll tell you what you can and can't do. So I applied. Uh, the then marketing director, John Kurtz, flew down. We talked. Then they brought me up to Amherst to meet the then head, Paul Kurtz. Paul has since uh, retired, and John is now running it. But at the time, Paul was still in charge. We talked, and the other day I agreed to do it. And uh, when we started out, we were looking at being most, you know, almost exclusively science fiction, mm-hmm. predominantly hardcover, mm-hmm. and we were looking at doing like just eight books in a year. Mm-hmm. And then John, who was running the market department, came in and said, no, I need at least 16 books a year, and some of them need to be paperback." So already the job ramped up. I was thinking, I remember foolishly when I took the job, thinking, oh, eight books a year, I could do that it'll only take about a third of my day.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: um and so I it was, when we when we started we were really modeling our stuff on a specialty small press like something like Golden Griffin.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: in fact I think I sent them copies of uh Golden Griffin's first Jeff Ford short story collection. Said, mm-hmm. you know, this is a good looking book. Let's let's aim to be like this. Um, things ramped up Immediately from the beginning, I n- remember we went in to talk to either Barnes & Noble or Borders—I can't remember which one—and they said, "No, no, no, your positioning isn't Golden Gritham, your positioning is Bantam. Mm, mm-hmm. That's 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 where you're you're trying to position yourself." And you
0: know, these hardcovers need to be paperbacks, et cetera.
1: And uh, it was. Um,
0: so Borders was the one that that changed the both yours and. Uh your boss's perception of where Pyre was going to be in yes, terms of, of a... of a So that's very, very interesting. I mean, that, that's... Because I think you guys really have successfully gone up against the big New York publishers and, and you know, you're putting stuff out there that's easily as, as good and, and, you know, as varied a line.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, we... Um...
0: One of the things that, that interests me about this is talk about the state of, of you know, publishing back then because you went in with the idea that you were going to publish almost exclusively science fiction, and science fiction was somewhat on the, the ropes back then. Um, tell us how things developed over the years. I mean, you're, you're now running a, a company that I think publishes probably more what uh, fantasy than, than science fiction. How did that evolution happen, and how fast did it have to happen?
1: You know, we, we, um, some of this has to do with the market, and some of this has to do with who we were as a company,
0: which Mm -hmm. is
2: that
1: the parent company is Prometheus Books, and they are the publishers of um, a lot of skeptical books, a lot of uh, scientific texts. They were long-term friends with Carl Sagan Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke, and their idea of what science fiction was was a very traditional idea, and they didn't you know, when we when we started, we debated for a while about whether or not to have a, a, a philosophy behind the line,
2: mm-hmm. you know, or,
1: or or to specialize in a subgenre.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, we were told early on that there are only two publishers that have a consistent branding and a and a loyal following. That's Bain and Dahl. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bain, Bain because it's not exclusively but predominantly publishes a certain kind of military science fiction
2: mm-hmm. and
1: Dahl because it publishes a certain type of commercial fantasy.
2: Mm-hmm. And that
1: those lists have readers who will just read everything they publish. But that that's impossible for someone like Tor to achieve just because they cast too broad a net.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and I mean, readers don't, readers traditionally don't look at logos. They just look at the author and the cover. Right. You know, uh, one of the things that's always never ceases to amaze me is once I've gotten involved in this industry, Going back to my library and pulling things down and going, oh my God, that was so and so, you know, and finding out that all uh, the people I have been friends with now are have always been my friends my whole life. I mean, mm-hmm. going right back to discovering that it was Bill Willingham who drew interior illustrations on one of the original Dungeons and Dragons manuals. Really? Yes. <laughs> and so you know, I mean I have tons of art books that Paper Tiger put out, and I'm friends with Paul Barnett that used to work with him for years, and I see he edited them, and you know. My life is continually a revelation, finding out that the people in my life have always been in my life in one form or fashion. I decide, And we even debated about having a, a series look the mm-hmm. way that like uh, Gallantz does with their Masterwork series.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And we decided that we would cast a broader net than that, that we didn't want to restrict ourselves to a certain philosophy or to a certain image or a certain subgenre. And quite uh, presumptuously of us, we would make the perhaps, we would make the, the through line simply be quality.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That whether we publish science fiction or fantasy or slipstream or whatever, that what we publish would be written in a higher order. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was early on when Norman Spinrod gave us a review where he reviewed several of our titles and said that um Pirate Publishing pitched down the middle science fiction and some fantasy of the same stripe. But it's written of a higher order. It's written higher quality than what's out there.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, and Spinrad we, has a new novel coming out. Mm-hmm. A new old novel, as it were. Interesting that you, that you would mention him. You're from Tor, right? Uh, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. So, and we started getting that kind of feedback. We heard from a distributor that our books were the um, consistently high quality. They are the most consistent level of quality of any publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, we heard, you know, from one of the chains that our books had the. Consistently highest level of cover art of any publisher.
2: Oh yes. Um,
1: <laughs> and uh, so we started getting this feedback that we really were achieving that brand. We started getting hearing from readers who were saying, "Buy everything that Pyre does." Mm-hmm. And in about our second or third year, uh, I remember Borders saying, "You guys have a brand now. There are people who buy everything you do, and the branding is quality." Um, we get that from critics, we get that from readers, we get that from, from the chains, we get that from individual bookstores. Now, uh, we have changed what we publish predominantly for a number of reasons.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, one, Prometheus itself has been moving over the last 10 years more and more into a general interest publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, They've still had um, some, they won the New York Times bestseller list with one of their atheist books. Uh, God, the failed hypothesis. But they published a, you know, they published a book on chocolate two years ago. Mm-hmm. They published a book called Funny Ladies about all the women cartoonists in the New Yorker. And so they've really gotten much more comfortable as a general interest publisher. And now that they've seen what we are, there's less concern that you know if I publish a book on magic that so that's going to reflect poorly on them. Um, on I the overall people, line, right, 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 right. I right, think right. people can tell the difference between reality and fantasy, at least some people can, maybe I can't. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and also, it said Paul Kurtz has stepped away and his son John Kurtz is now running the imprint, I mean, running the, the company. And, um, and then on top of that, we just, you know, we got out there and the market reality is fantasy outsells science fiction.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And,
1: I, and, and part of the reason, too, part of the reason that I didn't do fantasy for a long time is I wasn't being offered any fantasy I liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had done some things that were... Fantasy-ish, like we did. We did Charlie Coleman Finley's first novel, *The Prodigal Troll*, mm-hmm. which is fantasy, but it's fantasy and, and Edgar Rice Burroughs pastiche.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: it's a guy raised by trolls instead of Tarzan, raised by apes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We hadn't done, and we'd done some Michael Moorcock, which is fantasy, but Moorcock is his own subgenre. Mm-hmm. Sure. And uh, and every fantasy novel I was getting was just really, really, really uninteresting to me. And I I read Greg Keys's *The Briar King* at the first part of this decade. I mm-hmm. thought it was one of the best books I've ever read.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I have not been able to finish that series because I've never had a, you know, I've been employed as, a, as an editor ever since I read that, and I haven't been able to find the time to read outside my list to read three whole books. But it was marvelous. And so every fantasy manuscript I got submitted to me, I would say, do I like it more or less than Greg Keys's the Briar King?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And if the answer is
1: less, I don't buy it. And it took Joe Abercrombie's The Blade itself to crack
0: that. Well, that's a, that's a pretty high mark. High, the Briar King is a pretty high-water set, and Joe Abercrombie uh, is clearly a guy who's um, out in the front of a, of a whole new kind of uh, vision, I think, of fantasy. Uh, Joe
1: is, is, is starting to become his own definition, too. I mean, more yeah. and more often when you see a new fantasy author break, he gets compared to Joe. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've even done that, and I, I, um, it's just too easy to say. But, you know, Joe Abercrombie and Scott Lynch seem to be defining the whole era of fantasy, at least in the opinions of critics and bloggers.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, but so Joe was a huge, huge hit for us. And that gave me confidence that I wasn't completely uh, skewed in what I liked out of fantasy, you know, because I couldn't understand why I was getting so many fantasy manuscripts that I just detested. Mm. And, uh, and I thought, well, maybe I don't know how to buy fantasy. So when I found Joe... And Joe has done so well. I said, "Ah, I do know what I'm talking about. This is what I want."
0: Right, right.
1: And so then we really opened the door, and we took on Tom Lloyd, and we took on James Barkley, and we took on James Ng, and you know, now we've got the Asian Tchaikovsky's and Sam Sykes coming out, and we're starting to get the same kind of buzz on the the British edition of *Tom of the Tom of the Undergates* is starting to get the same sort of buzz that Joe had. When Blade first broke the glots, so mm-hmm. everybody excited
0: about him. And... The other thing I think that's interesting too, is that science fiction is, is making something of a comeback under the guise of steampunk. Um, that it's getting you know traction in the popular uh, fiction world. and, uh, and you guys have, have been there with that too, and I think we'll be there more. I mean I, I'm thinking of uh, uh, Paul Cornell um, and uh, oh, uh, Chris Robertson. Well, it it you know it depends on your definition of science fiction, and I and I want to say too that where
1: where I was is so it was a combination of not wanting to offend the parent company mm-hmm. and uh, not really liking a lot what was being offered, mm-hmm. and then both internal and external changes moving us into fantasy. Now, I know a lot of people would say steampunk is fantasy, it's not science fiction, mm. um, and that's and a, that's a fair and if we're going to be assessment. pure quill, the science fiction we've had the most success with are people like Ian McDonald and Paul McAuley, where they're you know, um, what you would call the award-caliber science fiction.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think
1: (laughs) that there is a bit of a market constriction in science fiction right now. I think that it's very hard to be a debut author in science fiction, writing mid-list science fiction. I think there's always room at the top, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, The John Scalzi's and and Charlie Strauss's are fine, but to break-in in in science fiction right now, as, as somebody writing, you know... Uh, I've got a novel that takes place in 2050. Mm-hmm. That's a very hard sell.
2: Mm.
1: Um, the golden age of science fiction is 14, right? And mm. I think that the audience of young males that read science fiction now get their science fiction fix from playing Halo. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, interesting yeah. point. Yeah, or yeah. watching uh, Battlestar Galactica or Caprica or something. Exactly. Else. And yeah. what's
1: you know what's what's fueling the genre right now is all the urban fantasy, which is actually an influx of romance
0: readers
2: mm-hmm. who come
1: via paranormal romance and urban fantasy. Um, so steampunk, if we count that as science fiction, then yes, there's a boom. <laughs> if you count it as fantasy, then no. Uh, I think I count it as science fiction. It's alternate history. Okay. And, and, and also steampunk is becoming, it's evolving outside of its Victorian roots, and it's becoming just a spice like anything else that you can add. So, you know, uh, was it Sherry Priest-Bone's Acre is set in the american northwest right mm-hmm. and um we've got our weird west coming out from mike resnick uh mike uh, george mann's ghost of manhattan is set in 1920s new york where you have coal-powered taxicabs. Um, you know I'm, I'm looking at something else right now which is also set in new york rather than the victorian england uh you know there's a lot of about which i cannot say more um you know, so I think that steampunk is becoming well. And of course, we've talked before, you and I, about the Adrian Tchaikovsky books, which are classic fantasy epic books. Mm-hmm. Only the bad guys have tanks that walk on spider legs. Uh, you know, steampunk is becoming.
0: Uh, that's an interesting observation. Yeah, a flavor that you can add in a in a sense in the same way that uh, science fiction can be, popped into a, uh, a book. You know, a, into a mainstream thriller or, or even uh, fantasy in the way that uh, China Miéville slipped some. Uh, fan, science fiction into uh, his boss log books, which are, are themselves somewhat uh, which are a break point.: have an, elements of steampunk in them, but you wouldn't call them steampunk books, exactly right. And I
1: think that that will prevent steampunk from being a fad or a blip. it's ironic I'd actually bought like five steampunk titles before I bought one set in England
0: talk about you know one of the things I think interesting decisions that, that you made is you you started out with uh, primarily hardbacks and now you're you've made a, a, a lot of you know uh, first edition trade paperbacks and I think that's an interesting economic decision are those selling well for you
1: yes and it's 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 you know that's driven completely by the market I mm-hmm. mean, we're being told constantly that people no longer want to want to pay for hardcover
0: sure and as long as you get the big enough the 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 trade paperback has the advantage of being almost as easy to read as a hardcover. Mm-hmm.
2: Well,
1: I, you know, I'm a collector. I buy everything in hardcover if mm-hmm. there's a hardcover edition.
0: And it, well, as, but as am I, by the way.
1: we're, you know, that's being driven by the chains. I mean, they, they just say they can't, they will not, you know, the orders for hardcover just won't be the same as the orders for trade paperback. And that's being driven by the consumer who, and I hear constantly from people that they just don't want to pay hardcover prices anymore. Um, so that's why that.
0: And and do you think that uh, going forward here, uh, as the iPad and other e-readers come out that make uh, e-reading more accessible, that you're going to see the the trade paperback audience migrate to a, an electronic format?
1: No, I think the mass market audience will. Oh, you know, right.
0: I, I, I had lunch with Kevin Anderson Sunday, and he said something very interesting,
1: which really made me rethink. Because one of my difficulties with, like, the reason I don't own the Kindle is that I have books I bought in the 1970s that I know I will still have 30 years from now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that if I buy a Kindle right now, that the books on that Kindle will be readable in 10 years. Mm, you're right. And I have more faith in the EPUB thing, you know, things that use the EPUB as a, as a format, because that seems to be the standard. But even that may change.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was talking with Kevin Anderson about that, and he really changed my I don't know if he's changed my mind yet, but he's really given me some proof of thought. Which is, he said that when he was a kid, he bought a mass market edition of Frank Herbert's Dune and he read it till he fell apart. And then he bought another one and he read it till it fell apart. And then he bought another one and he read it till it fell apart. And that now, across the course of his life, he's probably bought Dune 10 to 15 times. And that as a kid, he had absolutely no expectation that when he plunked down his money for a paperback edition of Dune, that that entitled him to every binding of Dune ever produced for the rest of his life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so his take is, you know, you're buying the book to read it now, maybe several times now. Uh, e-books have given people the expectation that they are then entitled to have that, that book forever. And that's not necessarily
0: true. Well, I don't know if ebooks have given us that that uh, that intimation. It's hardcovers have. Yep. you buy a hardcover, and you think, well, I could keep this this thing. This damn book could probably last longer than I could. You Will. Know? But
1: so I think that's why Jeremy Lassen has said, I think on your show, that that e are the new mass market, and I think that e-books
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, are, you know, disposable reading. Mm-hmm. I think it's Amazon that's going to start playing with bundles. Is Amazon or Barnes & Noble will have announced they're looking at that?
0: I'm not sure.
1: But I love—I don't know—the the logistics of it would be a nightmare. But I love, that and, and we're certainly not going to be the ones to do it first. Someone else has to pioneer this, guys. But I would love the idea of buy the hardcover, get the ebook. Mm-hmm. You know, that would make—I think that would both be a boon to hardcover sales and, you know, great. I've got my archival hardcover. I could put a broad art jacket protector on it, put it on the shelf, and never touch
0: it and read it on ebook. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah and then I can take then I can take my iPad with me uh, exactly. to on my trip to Europe and, so and you, not have to lug around 10 hardcovers.
1: So are are you in line to get one?
0: Oh uh, yeah actually I I placed my order <laughs> right. so I think the first day they came out but I'm getting the the uh, Cadillac one I well in theory uh, and so that ain't, it's not going to arrive till late April if then would be I think I'd be surprised if it arrived before. May. Yeah
1: I'm I'm probably going to be a second generation guy but I'm my father, uh, this is how you know ebooks here. My 71 year old dad bought a Nook, took it back because he, he was unsatisfied with it. Not that he didn't like reading online. He, he loves it. He already reads on his phone. He already reads on his iPhone. Mm-hmm. Thought the Nook wasn't where it needed to be. Took it back. Asked me constantly when the second generation Nook is coming out and is thinking about getting an iPad. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's, ebooks are here
0: e-books are here you heard it first from our you heard it today from lou anders i've been speaking with lou anders he's the editor of pyre books thank you for joining me lou thanks rick